Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. My notes say that it's the 29th of December, but actually I'm going to change that. It's the 29th of October. Not not the notes that Paul Perot dutifully gave I, me, but the notes that I, I produced that for bad, myself huh? this morning. I'm no, trying no, to rush I things. Think, I, no, I think they're my notes. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, don't rush things. It's not, uh, it's not the end of December. It's just the end of October. We have lots of time left in this year uh, to accomplish the will of the Lord in the world uh, into which he sends us as his ambassadors. All right, so uh, we're going to lead off this morning with a conversation about... Those of us who hold an expressly biblical view on human identity, so, uh, you know, if you are a person who receives and respects what God has said in his word about who we are uh, as image bearers created in the image of God, if you receive and have adopted as your own worldview what God has to say about identity and sexuality, marriage, the exclusivity of Christ as the way of salvation. These are the things that I'm going to use in terms of just describing a particular group of people, which you may or may not be a part of, and I totally recognize that. Um, I'm going to describe that group as Christians who are holding and expressing biblical views. And so with that in mind, and recognizing that not everyone agrees with that, we have this circumstance where um, we are often called judgmental. Like that's the, that seems to be the charge often levied against us as Christians, that, that we're judgmental. Those who view things differently and advocate for their views are apparently not being judgmental when they announce that those of us who are Christians and would dare to apply our worldview to the realities of the day, well, yes, we are judgmental. So here's some evidence this is just the latest evidence. I mean, it's, it may not even be the latest because it's now two days old, so who knows. This is some evidence, recent evidence, of what I'm describing. So there is a, a headline, uh, NBCNews.com headline, Worst List Names 180 Colleges That Are Unsafe for LGBTQ Students. The word unsafe uh, is in what we call scare quotes. So let's talk about this. Here is the lead of the article. An LGBT nonprofit on Monday released its annual worst list, naming 180 colleges and universities as the absolute worst, most unsafe campuses for LGBTQ youth. Campus Pride, which advocates for LGBTQ inclusivity and safety at U.S. colleges and universities, added 50 universities to the list since last year, the most extensive update since the first list started in 2015, according to the organization. The list includes colleges and universities that have either received or applied for a religious exemption to Title IX. So just to note, because they have exercised um, a right given to them by the federal government, they are on this list. Um, and so that's that's to be the first criteria. Uh, at 180 schools, this is again from the article on NBC News, 
At 180 schools, the list is the longest it's been in its six-year history, as if six years is a long time to have a list, by the way. Uh, The list includes Brigham Young University in Utah, Seattle Pacific University, Malone University in Ohio, Baylor University in Texas. Well, it's got 180 on it, so they could have gone on. Quote, these aren't just bad campuses or the worst campuses. These campuses fundamentally are unsafe for LGBTQ students, and as a result, they're fundamentally unsafe for all students. So the uh, founder, the person identified here as the founder and executive director of Campus Pride is quoted there. And, um, and he goes on to say uh, that these colleges and universities promote an environment of hostility, of discrimination, harassment toward a group of people. Um, so there you go. That is, um, that's the latest. So I just wanted to pause for a moment and, and consider some of this. First, it's not a news article. It's not a news article. This is a news outlet reprinting a press release from an LGBTQ advocacy group that produces its own annual version of Santa's naughty list. All right. So you and I could sit around and make up a naughty list as well. And we could then hire a PR firm um, and, you know, have a, have a fun name. And, and six years later, we could have NBC News, you know, suggesting that, you know, this is this is the list. All right. That's what's happening here. Um, So what do we have? Well, we have an LGBTQ advocacy group hoping that publicly shaming Christian colleges and universities by putting them on their quote-unquote worst list is going to provoke these schools to want to get off the list by doing what? Well, by adopting the worldview of Campus Pride. So to be clear, every student, I mean, I just want to be really clear about this. Every student on every college campus, in fact, every person everywhere at all times, is do the honor and respect, do every image bearer of the living God. Like, we treat people as nothing less than what they truly are, God's image bearers, whether they act like it or not. And so this question of whether or not these campuses are, are quote-unquote, safe is an important conversation to have. Absolutely, as Christians, we want to regard and treat every other human being as what we know them to be, image bearers of the living God. So again, what do we have here? We have a list of 180 colleges and universities that Campus Pride finds objectionable because they not only espouse a biblical worldview related to human identity and sexuality, but they apply those principles in the real world of campus life. So the objection here is that religious institutions of higher education are operating as, get this, religious institutions. That's what got them on the worst list. So um, so my concern is there's only 180, and my second concern is that some of them will be convinced to go along with this agenda um, because the goal uh, is evident. The walk-off of the article makes the goal evident. Um, there are on-campus groups, like let's just note that for a moment. There are pride groups on these campuses um, seeking to have these schools change their ways. So... There you go. That's what's going on out there in the big wide world today. Steve West is up next. He and I are going to talk about some other things, particularly those things on World Magazine's Liberties Roundup. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All 
right, joining us again today, Steve West. He's the editor of the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine. You can find it at World News Group, WNG.org. Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Glad to be here. Okay, so I thought that um, uh, that we had the right to express a religious exemption related to some things. Apparently, in the state of Maine, vaccination requirements um, no longer recognize religious exemptions. What's going on there? Well, that's correct, Carmen. You know, most uh, states who have uh, these vaccine mandates uh, also allow medical and religious exemptions. And the state of Maine and the state of New York as well, uh, both of those states said, no, we're not going to have any religious exemption at all. So everyone has to get the shot unless you have a medical reason for not getting it. And in Maine, uh, the federal judge there uh, and an appellate judge as well, when it went up on appeal, uh, decided that this was okay. Um, so right now we're waiting for, or they are waiting for, uh, uh, a ruling from the Supreme Court on an emergency basis to see if the Supreme Court will act uh, in order to block this uh, particular mandate. This, 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 uh, I should say, regards only healthcare workers in Maine. You know, next door uh, or close by in New York, uh, there's a similar mandate, and a federal judge blocked that particular mandate in respect to um, not allowing a religious exemption. So in New York, yes, you get a religious exemption. In Maine, no, you do not. So that's a big issue as to whether or not this conscious objection uh, to the to the COVID vaccines, which you know a number of Christians uh, believe that because of its connection to uh, the uh, to to abortions that occurred over 40 years ago. Uh, they've used the fetal cell lines uh, to, in order to um, research and develop these vaccines. They believe because of that that they should not take the vaccine. And then others uh, others do not believe that that's such a strong connection that they should object to the vaccine. So that's what's going on in Maine and in New York. Mm. All right. Um, I, I want to have you also uh, help us understand what is happening um, in relationship to transgender um, coverage because I think that, you know, this is this is on the horizon, at least for every employer in the country. And so I think that there's a lot of pressure being experienced by um, by Christian bosses. So you have a post you have a piece on this posted at uh, at World News Group. Why don't we take a very brief break and we come back. Uh, Steve, you can tell us about this piece. Transgender coverage demand pressures Christian bosses. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're talking with Steve West from World News Group. You can find what we're talking about today at World's website, WNG.org. The article is Transgender Coverage Demand Pressures Christian Bosses. Steve, brief us in on this. Yeah, Carmen, your lead-in was really particularly good because uh, what you were talking about was the fact that uh, we live in a, a time when it's um, when people are being shamed for, or there's an attempt to shame people for, not agreeing with a you know a transgender you know approach or the uh, the whole gay agenda. So in this particular case that I wrote about, um, it's a group of Christian employers. It's called the Christian Employers Alliance, who have taken on the Biden administration with a lawsuit over a transgender mandate that they've issued, basically saying that if you're an employer, whether you're a religious employer or um, whatever kind of employee, employer you are. 
you're going to have to um, pay for and provide health insurance coverage for gender transition procedures. And if you're a religious health care provider, you have to actually physically perform or facilitate those kind of procedures and treatments uh, for gender transition. Now, these are contrary to biblical beliefs about sexuality and gender, and these companies uh, and healthcare providers object to this. Um, they object to it because they believe that God purposely designs and creates humans as either distinctly male or female, and that that really uh, it can't be changed, and so that precludes them from operating in accordance with this belief. Now, they're not saying that you can't go somewhere else to some non-Christian um, medical provider or some other employer and, you know, um, that this would be this would be uh, appropriate uh, or at least something that you could do. They're just saying, let there be room in the culture for us as Christians, as believers, as companies to operate in accordance with our beliefs. And so this is just another area where the Biden administration's transgender mandate, which, you know, President Biden issued on the very first day that he took office. And that's sort of filtering its way through all of the different um, agencies in the government. And they're interpreting Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which bans uh, sex discrimination, which all, all Christians would agree with. Uh, it bans sex discrimination. And they have interpreted that also as banning discrimination based on sexual and orientation and gender identity. So you get what you uh, had in the uh, in your lead in there. You were talking actually about uh, Christian colleges that um, are being shamed, uh, uh, made called called unsafe places for LGBTQ people. Uh, what they're really talking about is that they are operating consistent with their beliefs. They don't think mm -hmm. dormitories and, you know, uh, bathrooms and locker facilities should be shared by people of two different sexes. That's what's going on there. In that case, actually, that you were talking about there, College of the Ozarks is the Christian college that's the focal point of that, and that's actually on appeal right now and waiting for a decision in that case. So it's something that actually operates on these employers. It actually is extending throughout all of different aspects of society, and it's an attempt, really. If it's not just a legal attempt, it's also an attempt to shame uh, shame people into changing their behavior. Mm. So, Steve, we have a, a friend on the on the text line right now um, who, based on their area code, I think lives in Washington State, which has a vaccine mandate. Um, and this individual says that their request for medical exemption was acknowledged, but then no accommodation um, has been made for them to actually do their job. Talk, talk about that. Talk about um, you know getting an exemption but then still not being able to work. Right, right. It, it, you know, that that's what's happening in Maine uh, and in, in New York as well. You can get a medical exemption, but you can't get the religious exemption. So, you know, th this, um, this really um, shows that they're prioritizing health over religion is, is that. And, you know, if they allow an exemption for one purpose, then the argument goes uh, from those who are uh, contending with these laws the argument goes that you have to allow an exemption for uh, a, a religious reason. If you're allowing it for a secular reason, you have to allow it for a religious reason. Uh, that's what happened in the Supreme Court case back in, uh, I think it was last year, the Fulton case, which dealt with a uh, Christian adoption provider in the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was allowing uh, exemptions uh, from a requirement that um, the adoption agencies in that city uh, allow 
anyone to adopt. Uh, they were allowing exemptions from that for certain people, but they weren't allowing this adoption agency to do that by not working with, uh, by exempting them from having to work with LGBTQ couples because they believed in the sanctity of biblical marriage. And so since they allow some exemptions, they said you can't disallow an exemption based on religious reasons. So that's the kind of argument that should be made uh, in these states where, and is being made in these states where they allow medical exemptions for vaccines and not uh, religious exemptions. And we'll see if they prevail. That's the big issue. Yeah, and I think uh, I hear the concern being raised here um, by by this listener that even though they have received a medical exemption, and so let's just say hypothetically a religious exemption, like right, because they are unvaccinated for a legitimate reason, they they still can't work because their employer doesn't allow direct contact in the workplace between people who are unvaccinated and vaccinated. So they're still barred from being able to do their job. So I just think that there's a there's a growing conversation related to this, and we are, um, you know, we, we are yet to know, to plumb the depths of, uh, of all that's here in this conversation. But I, I don't want to miss what's happening in California. Um, talk with us about um, uh, the, the speech laws there. Yeah, this will sound very familiar because we've seen these kind of laws uh, over the years, and the Supreme Court has had to dealt with, has dealt with it at least twice. In this particular uh, situation, uh, the California uh, California Governor uh, Newsom signed into law on October 8th a legislation that pro- prohibits people that are uh, people from harassing or uh, bothering people that are entering uh, locations that are administering the COVID-19 vaccines or any vaccine. Actually, what it is is it it basically creates a bubble around those facilities. And remember, we're talking not just about medical facilities, but you know, your your drug stores, your your large department stores, places that are grocery stores, places that are offering vaccines. So any place that's offering vaccine, you can't harass uh, a person in that zone. And that zone extends 100 feet from the entrance or exit of the vaccination site. And harassment is defined very broadly. So if you hand someone a leaflet that, uh, it, you know, uh, is a... Um, tries to educate them about the vaccines, that constitutes harassment. So basically, these folks have to stand so far back uh, from anyone entering that the only way they could be heard is to shout at them, and they don't really want to shout at them. But the thing that's happened in California is that this law catches up uh, also these street counselors, people that want to write to life, uh, street counselors that want to stand on the public sidewalk, and have a normal conversation or attempt to have a normal conversation with women that are entering uh, abortion centers as well. The Planned Parenthood Abortion Center there in Fresno, California, is located right next to Right to Life of Central California. That's strategic, obviously, that Right to Life wants to be right next door to Planned Parenthood. And what Right to Life counselors want to do is stand on the sidewalk in front of their building and talk to women that are passing by on the sidewalk that are heading toward the abortion center. And just try to have a conversation with them about alternatives to abortion. And this law actually prohibits them from doing that because they're within 100 feet of the entrance and exit of that vaccination site. So it ensnares all kinds of speech, not just uh, speech about uh, vaccinations. And also it ensnares this speech about um, alternatives to abortion. So to me, it's, it's, it's just absolutely unconstitutional. You know, the Supreme Court's dealt with these so-called bubble zones uh, a couple of different times. Back in, in 2000, 
They upheld a Colorado law that imposed an eight-foot buffer around abortion facilities and said, you know, that allows the speaker to communicate at a normal conversational distance. And that seems reasonable. And then in 2014, they struck down a 35-foot buffer around abortion centers in Massachusetts and said that if all that women can see and hear are vociferous opponents of abortion, then the buffer zones have effectively stifled their message. So, so what you find here is, you know, the court is supportive of, of zones that keep people from impeding access, that keep people from uh, actually um, reaching out and being able to touch somebody, but not to have a normal conversation about any kind of topic. And so this zone at 100 feet, uh, someone, a court, really needs to bust that verbal bubble because that is a that is a huge bubble around these facilities. All right. As a person who is doing um, flashcards related to driver's education with a student right now, the distance <laughs> I, I actually now I can imagine what 100 feet looks like, because that's also the distance from which your taillights must be visible. There you go. Oh, no, it's a thousand feet for that one. That's a thousand feet. Yeah. See, there you go. I mean, I'm 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 a order of 10 off. All right, Steve. Thank you so much, as always. Um, the stuff you're writing and the stuff you're covering is so important to us, and thank you for aggregating it for us um, uh, on the on the Liberties Roundup that you do um, for World. If you guys want to connect with Steve West, you can do so at wng.org. Um, and you're looking you're looking for the Liberties Roundup. That's the one I get. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carmen. Glad to be with you. Uh, absolutely. We'll be right back. Halloween is upon us, so when we come back, you and I are going to have a conversation about Halloween. So, give it a little thoughtful consideration, and then let's talk about it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. After years of working with kids, I've discovered that teens want their parents to know something that seems very confusing. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's true. Your definition of abnormal is your teen's definition of normal. Are you confused by teen culture? You're not alone. Society has changed and it's consistently morphing and teen behavior has evolved along with it. Teens wish their parents knew that they need space to be abnormal. Living in this culture may look different than we want. It's important that we teach our teens what's right and wrong, but we also need to allow our teens to express their own unique style. So mom and dad, trust your teens to use the tools you've given to make godly decisions, even in an abnormal setting. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. There's a ghost. There's a ghost inside of me. Not like those dreams in old bed sheets, saying trick or treat. All right, I have one inspiring story before we talk about Halloween. <clears throat> so this is a story out of Paradise, California. And you know me, anytime the word miracle or miraculous makes its way into a headline, um, I feel like we, we should talk about it. Um, and so this is actually a story about football and about fire and about redemption um, and about a person taking the platform that God has given him in a horrible moment 
to um, to declare the glory of God. And so um, I'm going to bring into view here for just a moment a high school football coach um, in Paradise, California. Now, you will remember that in Paradise, California, in just four hours on November the 8th, 2018, the campfire incinerated 14,000 homes, killed 68 people. Um, There was one patch of ground in the entire city that was totally untouched, totally untouched by the fire. And that was the high school football field. The high school burned to the ground. The the um, the facilities, you know, where all of the equipment was stored burned to the ground. The field untouched by the fire. And one of the few houses untouched by the fire was the house of the football coach, Rick Prince. Now, Rick Prince had been has been the coach of um, of the high school team there in Paradise, California, for 22 seasons. And here's, um, here's what uh, today.com you know, is, is quoting him as saying. Um, I told my son Friday morning after the fire, I said, if our house is there, if our house is there, then that's a sign that God wants us to stay. So this is a town that once had a population of 30,000 people, reduced to just 2,000 people after the fire. And so on that football field, in the wake of the destruction, the coach called a team meeting. And 12 players showed up, and he said, we're going to have football no matter what. And so they practiced, even though they had no jerseys, no helmets, no facilities. They, didn't, they even had to go get a football. Um, but the coach says, I wanted to give them hope. I wanted to give them some measure of hope. So here's what happened on Monday night. Um, four years after the fire, the San Francisco 49ers invited that coach and his team to stand with them on the field um, for Monday Night Football. And I just, I just want to say um, there are opportunities for us to declare the glory of God and the way that he calls us to live as ambassadors, um, even in the midst of devastating, devastating loss. This coach gave glory to God, acknowledged God's provision in the midst of um, what is horrendous loss for his for his family and for their community. Um, and so I just wanted to lift that up today. There you go. Um, okay, Halloween. Halloween is upon us. I think Halloween provides an opportunity to talk about the clash of worldviews um, because Halloween just so clearly puts the realities of evil and death right out there in front of us. Uh, I mean, I don't know what your community looks like, but mine is pretty heavily decorated for Halloween. Um, It also gives us an opportunity, I think, to present ourselves as something other than that, like, right, people who are operating out of a worldview that is not captivated by evil and death. Um, So I think what we have in Halloween is like a genuine conflict of spirits. It's an opportunity for us to acknowledge that spirits are real, that there are spiritual forces that there is a real spiritual battle going on against which we are um, to put up a real defense, but, you know, against which many people are putting up no defense at all, inviting whatever spirits might come their way um, into their hearts and into their homes. And so I think there's a risk. I think there's a, there's a risk in two directions here. I think there's a risk in making too much of Halloween, um, of being afraid of everything, uh, and there's a risk in not making enough of the issues related to Halloween. So 
let's think about that for a minute. Like, as Christians, are we making more of it than should be made, or are we not making enough of it? Like, are we not talking enough about the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms? Are we not talking enough about the reality of an enemy and um, and how he's prowling around right now looking uh, looking at our lives for a way to devour us? You know, I guess ultimately it's going to come down to should, question, should Christians uh, celebrate, and I would use that word there, um, we'd have a conversation about that word, but should Christians celebrate Halloween? And I think the answer is no, if you're going to use the word celebrate. Um, if you're asking, is Halloween an opportunity for us to participate in our communities in a way where we can bear light in the midst of darkness, then the answer is yes. So you see there that um, I think it's a nuanced conversation. So what is Halloween and what would we be doing if we were to participate in our communities um, on Halloween? So let's be clear about what the Bible says. Uh, The Bible says we are to take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. That's Ephesians 5 verse 11. The Bible expressly forbids the practice of witchcraft. It lists many of the things associated with Halloween on, you know, what I would say is the naughty list in Galatians 5. Leviticus uh, chapter 20, verse 27 expressly says, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. That's people who are fascinated with death. Um, do not seek them out. So make yourselves unclean by associating with them. That is, you know, then, then that verse ends, I am the Lord your God. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, so that's a straightforward, you know, no to Halloween. But like everything else, I think there's a conversation to engage in here because, you know, we're a little more nuanced than, okay, let's grab a Bible verse and see if we could slap it onto the situation. Um, so this is not proof texting. This is reading scripture and the full scope of it, um, including the calling to be light in the midst of darkness, recognizing that we live in perverse generations. So what might it look like for a Christian in the culture today to be a redemptive presence in Halloween? Like, that's who we are, right? We are redeemed people. So what does it look like to have a redemptive witness? Um, today's Americanized Halloween emphasizes death and the occult and evil spirits and sexual immorality and gluttony and lust and vandalism and darkness and fear. But Halloween is also All Hallows' Eve. It's the eve before All Saints Day, when we remember Christians who have been martyred for the name of Jesus. I mean, Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, was actually, like, it's a designated feast day, a Christian feast day. During the 8th century, Pope Gregory III moved All Saints Day from the spring, when it had been traditionally celebrated, to November the 1st. And that's where the debate about, you know, whether or not the church claimed this pagan holiday, um, it really ensues. So did the Pope move the date of All Hallows' Eve in order to coincide with a pagan festival of Samhain as an effort to sanitize the revelry that was going on? Um, Or is there some other reason maybe that the Pope moved the celebration of All Saints' Day from the spring to the fall? I'm going to pick up on that question in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen.
All right, so we're having the Halloween debate. Um, and, yeah, to those of you who want to know my opinion of Church's Trunk or Treat, I have no opinion on Church's Trunk or Treat. There you go. Um, so the Pope, the Pope sets the feast days. And so the the, the question was, um, is there a better time to have this feast day where we acknowledge um, the the saints? Is there a better day uh, than in the spring? And if there is a better day, what might that better day be? Maybe there's a better season. Maybe there's a better time of year. Because here's what was going on at the time. An increasing number of pilgrims were traveling to Rome to celebrate the feast day of All Hallows' Eve. And the problem with having a massive number of people traveling in the spring is that fields are just being planted. And so the advantage of having a feast day in the fall was that there was plenty for the pilgrims to eat along the way. And there was plenty for them to eat once they arrived, because after all, it was the time of harvest. So what was the Pope's motivation? Was it to, um, as, as some will argue, occupy a pagan holiday and basically take it over so that it would go away? Um, or were there other motivating factors, uh, you know, at play as well? So um, when we talk about, we think about redeeming or reclaiming Halloween and turning it, you know, back into what what it was called forth to be, All Hallows' Eve, part of what we have to look at is what's going on in the culture um, related to Halloween. And and here in the United States of America, it is now the second most consumer consumerized holiday. It's estimated that consumer spending this Halloween is going to reach an all-time high of 10.14 billion with a B dollars. That is a lot of money. So someone's making a lot of money on Halloween. So um, that makes it kind of a quintessential American holiday, or certainly a capitalistic holiday. And so if you're, if you're tempted, if you're one of those people who's tempted to imagine or claim that America is an expressly Christian nation, I want you to think deeply about the reality of what Halloween has become in the United States of America. The investment that people make in Halloween, the allure, um, just what's celebrated on this night of trick-or-treat. And then as we consider redeeming Halloween, how might we reorient our own thinking? How might we move conversations in the direction of faith? So back in the day, again, we're talking about 610 A.D., when All Hallows' Eve was added to the official church calendar. Back in the day, it was a commemoration of the people who had given their lives for their faith in Christ. What if we returned to that practice? What if we used resources from Persecution.com to actually talk about people who die for the name of Jesus. So I am not suggesting in any way that we participate in every aspect of Halloween as currently practiced in America. I'm not doing that. Have nothing to do with the demonic. Have nothing to do with the darkness, the witchcraft, the celebration of death. None of that is appropriate for Christians. But turning on our porch light and welcoming our neighbors, having a bonfire around which people can gather, blessing little children, distributing tangible blessings— Yeah, yes, yes to all of that. Showing hospitality to strangers, yes to all of that. So one approach to this conversation with older kids is what I used to do in youth ministry, um, and, and we called it the threat assessment. And this was a way of engaging young people and their parents in a conversation about Halloween 
that um, actually equipped uh, equipped them for lots of other conversations in life. So this was the approach that I took uh, to the threat assessment of Halloween. Who or what is at risk? Am I at risk? Are mine at risk? Are others at risk? Is God's glory at risk? Is my safety at risk? Is my witness at risk? How about my moral standing or our family? Life, liberty, future opportunity. What's at risk here? And then what what type of threat am I or are we facing? Is it a physical threat, spiritual threat, psychological threat, relational, financial, personal, familial, communal, existential, cosmic? What's the, what's the threat here? And then what's the clear and immediate danger? And then finally, what resources are available to help ameliorate the threat? And so you can actually use these questions in relationship to pretty much anything, but you then turn after you do the threat assessment and you have the conversation about the uh, the Christian opportunity. So who or what is at risk if we don't go out as representatives of Christ into this place, into this time, into this moment or to this event? What's at risk? What's at risk if we don't go, if we don't participate, if we don't show up, if we don't shed light? And then what type of opportunity is this? Instead of what type of threat is this, you ask, what type of opportunity is this? And then what's the clear and immediate opportunity? What's the next right thing we could do here? And then finally, what resources are available to, uh, to help me use this opportunity for the gospel's advance? What do I have? What has God placed within my reach that I could use um, as a resource uh, to take advantage of this as a gospel opportunity in the mission field of the world today. Christians would literally never go anywhere in mission if we only ever assessed the threat. We would literally never go anywhere. So how might Halloween be an opportunity? We are in the world, but not of it. We are light and darkness. We're representatives of a king and a kingdom. We put on Christ, we put on the full armor of God, we recognize the reality of evil forces, and we stand against them. We recognize that the whole world is held captive to the enemy who likes to use fear and the fear of death as a primary weapon. I mean, people are genuinely afraid. I get that. But we are not. Why is that? Because the fear of standing before a holy God after death does not produce fear in those who are redeemed. It produces an unassailable joy. So this may be the only time of the year that our neighbors actually come knocking on our door. Think about that for a moment. What if we saw that as an opportunity to bless instead of curse? So um, you can you can go all in or you can go all out. um, But let uh, you know, let us be people who are promoting good in the midst of all of it. Um, and then also certainly prayerfully consider 1 Corinthians 9.22. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. What if we applied that text to Halloween? We're not called to live in the relative safety of our own house or our own neighborhood or even our own nation. We're called to live in the utter mess of a world where evil often reigns, but God reigns supreme. We're called to go out there as light into dark streets. And there's no darker night than Halloween in America. So yes, let us guard our hearts. Let us put on the full armor of God. Let us pray. But then let's go. In the spirit of Christ, let's go as lights into a perverse generation. We'll be right back. 
is Friday, so here's a really quick Friday farm report. It is time to harvest the sweet potatoes. That is what we will be doing here uh, this weekend. And so a few reminders um, related to sweet potatoes. So we don't grow white potatoes at my house because we're not any good at it. We have planted white potatoes and we are not we, we are sweet potato farmers. That is our thing. And so part of what I'll say uh, here today on this is stick what you're good stick with what you're good at. Produce what you're good at producing. And so when we think about lives that are productive, um, you know, with an ever more abundant harvest of righteousness to God, like, you know, stick with what you're good at. Um, and so let me encourage you to uh, to consider that today. Harvest joy and harvest with joy and give God thanks. I have to tell you, there is no greater delight any day of the year at our house than the day that we harvest the sweet potatoes because it is so much fun. It is really dirty, but it is really, really fun. Um, and then allow things time to season. That's one of the things I have learned from sweet potatoes. You can't just pick them up, take them out of the ground and wash them and imagine that they're going to be good. No, no. You have to take them out of the ground. You have to leave them totally dirty. And then you have to put them in a little bit of a steamy environment for about 10 days. So they like like 80 degrees at 80 percent humidity. So um, achieving that is always a challenge. Uh, but that's what it takes. to. That's what sweetens them. It's that time. They need time to season. So maybe you and I need some time to season as well. Uh, and then there's this note. These are my all my sweet potato notes for the day. Store up what you know you'll need and give the rest away. So sweet potatoes um, last for a full year. That's no problem. But you don't need more than you need. So give away the ones you don't need today. Uh, and then celebrate every time. Every time you sit down uh, at the table and you get to eat something that God grew in your garden um, that you dug up with your hands, man, celebrate every time uh, you, you have the opportunity to eat that. Okay, um, and then finally, uh, Madam Barks-A-Lot has also become Madam Choose-A-Lot. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's going on on the dog front. There's my Friday farm report. I, um, I love that, um, that you love what's going on in my life. I love what's going on in your life as well, so thank you for sharing. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.